whatever you're asked. You want to play Truth or Dare? Tell them you've seen the movie. All right. All right. Hey, guys, this is the Morbid Horror Podcast, and today I'm here with Tim Ritter. If you'd like to introduce yourself. Tim Ritter, independent movie maker and writer. Awesome. And uh, I just got uh, some questions written down for you. We can just kind of take them one by one. Okay. That okay. sounds good. Cool. And um, one question that I usually start off with, um, with everyone that I interview, is, is uh, what got you into horror? Pretty vague, but what got you into horror? <laughs> well, um, I guess I've always, even since I was a little kid, just kind of gravitated towards it. And, um, you know, once I was old enough to understand, you know, like Dark Shadows, Jaws, the Incredible Melting Man, you know, all those kind of early mid-70s movies, uh, dinosaur stuff, uh, always infatuated mm-hmm. with uh, the Hammer movies, Dracula, all that kind of stuff. So... You know, as a little kid, I just liked Monsters, uh, The Night Stalker, and just from there, it led to, like, Halloween, you know, when that um, ran on television, and uh, just kind of went with uh, uh, the trends of uh, horrors that kind of transcended there a little bit uh, from Psycho to Halloween and, you know, Night of the Living Dead and all those kind of things, and they mix-mashed into everything. Awesome, and... um. When you started uh, shooting films, I was wondering uh, how old how old you were when you started uh, making your own films, own horror films. Uh, I first grabbed the Super 8 camera probably, it'd probably be 1978, 70, I guess 78 or 79, somewhere in there. So I probably would have been about 9 or 10, something like that. Okay, and is there any... Um, like filmmakers or movies that um, inspired you to start picking up a camera and making your own? Uh, I'm just trying to remember. Um, I mean, I just liked, always liked to, you know, make my own little stories and write them up. And then, uh, like I said, when I got kind of infatuated by Jaws and um, Star Wars, of course, was really big. Dawn of the Dead, I was always infatuated with. But I, didn't, I wasn't old enough to actually see it until uh, it you know, came out on VHS. But, you know, once I started to, you know, emulate things, um, you know, I'd say it's, it's a, you know, a bunch of them, you know, it's like, I mean, one, I guess the one that really, because, uh, you know, I started making a whole bunch of Super 8 movies. I was trying to, you know, do like Star Wars. I had movies like It Came From Outer Space. But when I saw John Carpenter's Halloween and then also a little bit later, Last House on the Left, I realized that I could kind of do stuff in my own backyard and instead of trying to, you know, make spaceships and stars and all that stuff i could just have a rubber knife and a girl upstairs and do a point of view shot and uh you could kind of kind of do the uh you know kind of do your your own horror movie and it would look kind of cool it'd be like oh i don't have to come up with spaceships and uh you know green screens or back then it was probably uh blue screens but uh, you know that kind of that kind of path of getting into john carpenter west craven and you know mm-hmm. gordon lewis John Waters, you know, all those kind of movies. Once once I discovered all those, I was like, uh, wow, I got to, you know, I got to do this. Uh, this is kind of what I was heading towards, and now I see other people who actually do it. And, and of course, Herschel Gordon-Lewis was a big influence. Uh, his book, uh, the, the Fanico book, I believe, it was called The Amazing World of Herschel Gordon-Lewis. And it, 
it kind of talked about how you know he made gore movies and then would um take them around to drive in theaters and show them and uh, kind of platform them you know out out like that and go to the next theater another state and uh you know word of mouth will get around they only had so many prints i and i forget what they call that it was like um uh, like i don't i want to say flat boarding but it's uh, it was a different type of thing where they just kind of went from one theater to the other but i saw that kind of same opportunity uh with mom and pop video stores so eventually when i made my first feature day of the reaper you know we did kind of a similar thing going store to store trying to you know sell sell the copies and it kind of kind of rolled from there yeah, that actually goes to my next question is, uh, what inspired your first film, Day of the Reaper, and how did that start? What was the question again? Kind of echoed. Oh, sorry about that. Um, what inspired your uh, first film, Day of the Reaper, and how did that project start? Well, basically, again, Halloween, uh, I think I had seen uh, Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes on VHS. This is one... This is when everything was first run on VHS, you know, all these old classics that you kind of read about in Fangoria magazine. And I was always a big, you know, again, going back to the other question um, uh, about the, uh, you know, what inspired you, uh, famous monsters. And then, of course, the first issue of Fangoria with Godzilla on the cover. I saw that in the newsstands and grabbed that. So I'm kind of a lifelong uh, Fangoria reader. And I would read all about, you know, all these movies that I could not see for a few years where you kind of like, you know, kind of put like a mental bookmark on Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes. And I think uh, it was a combination of, you know, just the love of Halloween, watching that over and over and over. And then uh, Pieces uh, hit video before, you know, we made Day of the Reaper. So that was an inspiration, explaining the bad dubbing and everything else. And uh you know, I did it also for a school project. I was in high school when I made Day of the Reapers, 1984. And I did it as a class project for an art project for a, a teacher named Charles Listella. And I had all the uh, drama class involved. And we had uh, different uh, art people involved with the movie. And uh, that's how it kind of all started. It's kind of just wanting to do a first feature-length movie based on uh, Herschel Gordon-Lewis, those kind of gore effects with mannequins and everything i figured man we can pull this off on our own my cousin and i joe pruth have been you know making super eight movies for let's see 78 79 81 or two to three so probably five years or so you know we've been doing it it was like hey we want to actually make a feature movie and not use you know soundtracks that were already real soundtracks was which you know that's how we scored our early movies was just vinyl records and stuff um mm-hmm. or you original score so this was an attempt to do a, a completely original movie on and then transfer the super 8 footage to videotape which i did i used the, the uh, high school vhs uh, i think it was a beta camera and i shot the movie i projected it into a shoebox and uh you know made my master tape that way and on beta and then i would make uh, beta beta to vhs copies and i had the uh i, I was in the uh, school newspaper and we did the uh, slip cases, you know, uh, in that class. I had the, the artist for the newspaper. He actually, uh, you know, did the cover and everything. And then we went around store to store to, you know, sell the, sell the movies once we made, made copies. Kind of right out of the trunk of cars or bicycles or however we could do it. Awesome. And um, I noticed the uh, common theme in some of your films is... Uh, you know, spousal cheating and cheating. And I was wondering if there's, um, uh, if there's anything that 
that that caused that to be a recurring theme, whether you had a traumatic experience or that made you want to put it on film or or that where that, where that <laughs> idea kind of comes uh, from. No, it's something that I still gravitate towards, I guess, because early on, you know, relationships were kind of a mystery, and I always saw that you know the the possibility of um, you know being heartbroken could lead to extreme you know reactions one way or the other. Tales, Tales from the Crypt and uh, EC Comics. It was always about, you know, jilted marriages and, you know, spouses getting revenge on each other, whatever it was. So I just kind of combined all that at the time. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was just, you know, different things where I maybe had a girlfriend and, you know, she'd break up with me or, or didn't like me the way I liked her, that kind of thing. So, and so I just kind of channeled that into, you know, what became... Uh, Truth or day or critical madness at the time. Uh, you know, when you're that age, you take things a lot harder when you're like 15, 16 years old. So, <laughs> so, so, and it's just something that has always uh, been really, as a matter of fact, I'm working on a uh, movie now for High Fear. And I read uh, one of the inspirations for it because everybody's doing their own little segment for it's like an anthology movie. It's the third one in the series. And High Eight was the first. Oh, like High the death. High Death, High Eight. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. And this is the we're doing the third one now. And, and it was funny because I was reading, uh, just trying to get some inspiration from um, some of the very old EC comics in the 50s. And all the stories have jilted lovers and jilted husbands and wives. And it just makes for, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a, a kind of a story everybody can kind of relate to. So I think that's why I kind of gravitated for it. everybody's felt those emotions before rejected or having to say, oh, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't really like you that way. And, it, you know, it can lead to real turmoil, the old fatal attraction type of thing or the person who, you know, just goes crazy because they were rejected or vice versa. So. Awesome. And um, kind of on that topic, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, touched on it a second ago, uh, Truth or Dare, and how the general reception was to that film, and and, and how that started. Uh, well, basically, we did uh, Truth or Dare. Um, um, Joel Weinkoop and I made a movie called Twisted Illusions, and Joel is somebody that um, used to be my babysitter growing up, and uh, uh, he moved out of the neighborhood, and I made Day of the Reaper, and then when uh, I made Day of the Reaper, his nephew saw the ad in the newspaper for the school, and we got together after like five, six years of not seeing each other, and we made a movie called Twisted Illusions, and it was another anthology movie kind of inspired by Twilight Zone, Creep Show, those kind of things, and one of the segments in there was called Truth or Dare, about a man who catches his wife cheating, and then he kind of goes crazy and uh, has hallucinatory friends and make him ch- makes him... His hallucinatory friends make him chop himself up and he ends up into a, a mental institution and all this stuff. And this was a short and twisted illusions, um, one of uh, seven or eight we had in there. And that one was the most well-liked. So before I graduated high school, I, I uh, wrote a feature-length script based on the short, added two, two more acts to it. So it was a three-act uh, movie and, you know, very um, beginning, middle, and end type of thing. And uh, from there, we uh, went ahead and uh, tried to shop it around to various distributors and uh, financiers. And we found one in Chicago, Northbrook, well, actually, Northbrook, Illinois, called Video Swap International. And eventually, after uh, uh, getting, uh, you know, 
sending them Twisted Illusions, the screenplay, and after I graduated high school, uh, my other producing partner, Al Nicolosi, and I, we went up to uh, Northbrook, Illinois, to discuss it in person with them. At that time, there was only... Uh, there's very few shot on video movies or made directly for video. And our idea was to try to do the first one. And of course, Day of the Reaper was getting out there slowly. The, the, these uh, van guys who uh, distributed mom and pops had picked that up. And they were mm-hmm. kind of getting into other states other than Florida, which is where all this was taking place. And we eventually, uh, you know, got a deal to, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew from there. And, um, the budget ended up being $250,000 as opposed to, we originally planned to do like a, just a little video movie, maybe spend $50,000 on it. And it kind of grew. Yeah. And then we suddenly we were filming on 16 millimeter and uh, we had explosions and all kinds of cool stuff. So it's kind of like a, you know, right out of the gate, it was kind of a, a dream come true for like the third feature length movie. But the, the reception as your question was uh, initially when it came out was uh you know, everybody wanted to rent it because the the video market was uh, kind of just this open mall where every everything was like, uh, you know, it, you could put it out on the store and people hadn't seen it, put it out on the shelf, you know, a nice VHS, uh, attractive box. It would pretty much rent out every day of the, the week for two, three years. So it was a really good investment. And, and Truth or Day had a really cool box. But, yeah, the initial reception to the movie was really... Uh, Pretty negative, you know. Variety gave it a terrible review. Hollywood Reporter trashed it. Fangoria said, "I forget what they said." Fangoria reviewed it, and it was like, uh, "Looks like somebody had a mental breakdown while making <laughs> while making this movie." So, so for years, it was kind of uh, you know everybody saw it. It, it. it you know, and I don't know what you know the general public thought of it because uh, you know there was no internet or anything like that where everybody could write their reviews, but. Most of the early reviews from like eighty six to 90, 92, 93, they were they were pretty uh, pretty merciless, just saying that uh, this thing was just uh, absolute junk. It was it wasn't so, and I think uh, like the tenth anniversary of Fang or Fangoria or or hundredth hundredth edition, they gave it one like one of the worst movie or you know directed video movie horror awards. So uh, so that was not too cool. But then later, it kind of turned around and you know once it came out on dvd people saw it in a different light for some reason and uh you know and saw a lot of its faults as charms and and now it's got you know a little bit better reputation in the underground market yeah some i wanted to bring up um you might already be aware of this but i was recently watching uh there's an interview with elijah wood and he was asked what his favorite horror movie was and he said uh, truth or dare yeah, that was cool. That was a cool surprise. Uh, yeah, a lot of uh, a few celebrities have come out, you know, and said that. I think Truth or Dare was uh, one of. The, I think that was the first movie horror movie that Elijah actually saw. His brother introduced him to the movie, and he's always been a a fan of the movie and a great champion of the movie. As a matter of fact, he he showed it uh, like two years ago at like the Cannes Film Festival or one of those big film festivals uh, with a running. You know, they they ran the movie, and he like had a commentary through the whole thing live where he would just discuss, you know, why he liked the movie and, you know, how he discovered it and how it got him into horror. And, uh, you know, that was just a really cool thing. So yeah, definitely is, uh, really awesome to see, you know, cool people like that 
that, that have so much clout and can you know give the movie a good buzz and and actually say hey this got me into horror so that, you know that's pretty much an honor to to you know hear that and he seems pretty cool and i love the uh, maniac remake that was really cool yeah it was a good one but yeah it's gotta be a that's awesome though that i was kind of taken back i i I didn't understand uh, there was more of a history and that he was doing commentary over screenings and all that. I just happened to stumble upon that, and I was kind of, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, I did as well. I think it's pretty cool. And uh, my my uh, personal favorite film of yours is uh, Killing Sp- And I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about how, how that started and I guess similar question, how that project started in the general reception to uh, Killing Sp- as well well after we finished uh, truth or dare uh the same producing partner al nicolosi and then joel weinkoop and myself we, we you know we all said hey we want to go ahead and make another movie and you know try to try to strike while the iron's hot and there was there were some things in truth or dare that didn't get filmed quite the way we wanted them with special effects and stuff so we kind of transferred that into the killing spree script and came up with uh Kind of like it was like Maniac meets uh, Night of the Living Dead was the idea behind it. This guy kills, you know, all these people for, again, cheating. <laughs> yeah. As we're discussing there, uh, the little plot point. But, uh, and then, you know, they all come back to get him. And, and the idea was, you know, was it real? Was it in his head? Or did all this, this kind of happen? And Return of the Living Dead had come out. And I was really excited about that movie. And, you know, we all just wanted to, uh, you know, make this, uh, movie uh and it took it you know again we after the truth of day was successful enough uh in terms of money it sold like thirty thousand units right out of the the gate which was you know really good and that was like at fifty dollars a pop it sold in japan and was in theaters in japan and video kiosks or something when they, they had those in stores like i guess they were like little keep booths only you could watch regular movies in them uh and they, they, at the time, I guess they were really trying to get those to go back in 86 to 88. But, uh, you know, we used some, most of the same cast members of um, Truth or Dare and Critical Madness. Uh, we, Asbestos Felt was a hangar day guy in Truth or Dare. We said uh, Al Nicolosi really knew him well, worked with him uh, at a TV station. And uh, we said, let's leave, use him in the you know lead role. He's got this John Waters type of appeal, you know, like uh, the guy in Pink Flamingos that was, uh, I think, Mink Stoll's uh, husband or boyfriend or whatever. He had this kind of wild appeal that uh, we just thought was outrageous and if we would play it with a lot of black humor and everything. So, you know, we wrote up the script and uh, it took, you know, probably about a year or so to raise the money and, you know, get everything going and get the location. The producer... um, we had just bought a house and we decided to film the entire movie at his house, which was probably a big mistake because with all the blood flying around at uh, that, uh, especially in the attic with the chainsaw scene, that blood still, Cairo syrup is still dripping down out of the rafters of that house. But uh, so we shot, I think it was the summer of 1987. It was really, really super hot near about a hundred degrees every day. And, you know, we shot the movie and uh, again, it was a, uh, you know, there's some problems with the shoot, but, you know, we got the movie done, and uh, Mark Peterson shot it. He was from the New York School of Visual Arts, and that was uh, kind of cool. Uh, he knew, he tutelaged under Roy Frumke, so I got to see Document of the Dead uh, 
years before it actually had a, an official release. So that was kind of cool. And uh, Joel Harlow, he brought in Joel Harlow, who's now an Academy Award winning uh, special makeup effects guy. And he won for like Star Trek and he's done a zillion trauma movies. He works with Steven Spielberg, but he started on Killing Spree and did uh, the special makeup effects. And one of the cinematographers, I might add, is a big, uh, I didn't know he was musically, you know, motivated and, and inclined back then, but he's like, uh, uh, he's one of the big guys who scored uh, Rogue One, the Star Wars movie. So it's kind of cool. Killing Spree's got a lot of people in there that started out and, you know, that was their first movie. And now they're, you know, all Hollywood players and, you know, doing really big things in the, you know, niche that they chose. So that was uh, kind of cool because, uh, like, Joel Harlow, he, Kind of works exclusively, not exclusively, exclusively, but he does anything Johnny Depp is in. Johnny Depp says, hey, this is my makeup, man. And, you know, he's done all of Johnny Depp's uh, stuff for probably his last six or eight movies, all the Pirates movies and Tim Burton movies and all that kind of stuff. So, again, it's just kind of really, really cool little history, uh, you know, with the movie. And when it came out, the reviews, uh, it took a while for it to come out because uh, we were trying to get the money back from the investors. And that's when the video market started to have problems there's a big stock market crash like there is all you know every few years here now it seems mm-hmm. uh, there's a you know big mm-hmm. crash there's the, the one from 1988 and that's when uh, all the distributors that we had had tied to the movie uh were having problems so we ended up self-distributing a few years later and you know the initial reaction was oh here we go again another you know little splatter movie here and um it, i mean it got good reviews for the gore for the people who like that sort of thing but beyond that you know it was really people didn't understand that it was supposed to be you know dark humor black humor uh played straight again variety kind of gave it a lukewarm review i think Chaz Ballin, he he gave it a nine on the Gore score, and which was pretty cool. Uh, it was probably the best review we had. But all the mainstream, I guess, part of the problem was, and you know, we were, and as as it is now, when you have a, a mix, say you're an independent movie maker, and you slap it on, um, you know, Amazon Prime, or you get a Netflix deal, and you didn't have much money. You know, people compare it to movies that are 10, 20, 30, 100 million dollar budgets. And if you only had, you know, like uh, $50,000 or $5,000 now, you know, it kind of gets, I guess, I don't know, unfairly categorized, but it's kind of, you know, it's really, um, you know, different kind of movie. And you really got to like that kind of movie. So, (laughs) so again, yeah, the first five or 10 years, I, I don't know. There wasn't very many good, good, good reviews, but uh, they were either lukewarm or or ter- terrible. I remember Joe Bob Briggs said, uh, "File it under a, one of America's deadliest home videos" or something like that. So I guess you know I would just pick up <laughs> the little best part of each review that I, I could <laughs> find. If I could find something, you know, that was like, oh, oh, they said. Out of this 20-sentence review, there's, like, one thing I can grab out of there that sounds like it's halfway good, but uh, the rest of it's pretty uh, pretty uh, critique-ish there. Awesome. And uh, earlier you mentioned how you're kind of able to um, expand your audience audience through uh, mom-and-pop shops, uh, video stores, and I was wondering if, um, like, the uprising of uh, corporate chain video stores maybe kind of threw a a wrench in that or negatively affected you oh yeah it did once 
that's how uh, Truth or Dare and Killing Free and Wicked Games and some of my other movies got in to Blockbuster because basically they bought the mom and mom and you know they were buying them all out and they were if, if a mom and pop store in a small region had ten or twelve stores you know in a demographic area of say mm-hmm. you know two hundred miles or whatever you know they'd buy all of them so they they would get all my movies so uh, but yeah the days of actually going in. To a video store going hey how's it going i'm i'm tim ritter and uh, this is joel weinkoop the star of this movie they're like what we make movies with their locally shot um you know uh here's a copy right now and if you buy a copy for like 39.99 uh you know it'll it'll rent out over you know probably every day we got st- we even had stickers that said you know filmed and wherever it was a palm beach county or whatever you know wherever it was but yeah and even, you know, getting into smaller chains um, got a lot more difficult when I got, like, uh, you know, very corporate. I mean, some of the chains, like Hollywood chains. Video, were pretty independent-friendly. But, like, Blockbuster, eventually, you couldn't get anything in there. I mean, you would end up, instead of going in and talking to the owner of the store, you'd have to put the screener in and then wait six months. And then they mm-hmm. have a look at it. And then they get back to you. And then they'd... If they did want it, then they would try to negotiate. That you know, it used to be like, okay, the wholesale price of a tape is twenty or thirty dollars. We thought that was reasonable. You know, sell through then was thirty nine ninety five, and then later like twenty. But you know, they try to get it for ten or five. Later, it was like two. <laughs> so it was like, well, we're buying you know three thousand copies. We should only pay two dollars a piece, and you couldn't even duplicate them for you know under five. So yeah, it created a huge monkey wrench over over the years. You know when they did that, and I forget when that was. It was probably ninety three to like ninety eight somewhere in there is when they kind of came in and gobbled up everything they could. Okay, and um. Yeah, it's interesting because I that was a little bit. Um, I'm uh, 23 years old, so when I I remember when I was like very young, uh, seeing um more of the like, I don't know how to explain it. I kind of seeing the transition from like VHS to DVD and kind of the older uh, family-owned video stores kind of going out with the newer video stores. But yeah, I was just genuinely curious because I I wasn't really sure how that um how that kind of screwed over. Or shafted independent filmmakers definitely made it more difficult because like i said you had to go through you know corporate uh approvals it wasn't just going into you know sam's video store and going hey salmon and then he could make the decision right then it was yeah. more okay mail it into the the ceo will have to look at it and then like creep got rejected from blockbuster initially uh because of the man's rage on the front of the vhs box that's after months of, of talking to him and i even did they were like oh we even did a specific cut and cut things out so you know they would carry it and blah 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 and then turned out they later just said all oh, the man's rage on the cover you know offends us so we're not going to carry it and then later they decided then the movie went through ren track which was a, a distributor that um was later owned by Disney. I don't know if it was then or not, but they picked up copies and they sold to Blockbuster. So it was kind of weird. And then uh, it was a you know a real big headache trying to sell this stuff yourself that way. But you know eventually it did end up in the uh, independently owned as as opposed to the corporate Blockbuster. But then everything got mixed up because then the corporate stores would buy the you know buy out the independent ones in some cases, or the owners would want to sell them. So eventually the movie did end up in there, but it wasn't like a big rollout or anything like we would have liked. Yeah. 
Definitely. And uh, is there a film in uh, your filmography that you're most proud of the end result with? Uh, I still like Wicked Games. That one came out really cool. And Reconcile. Both of those uh, kind of came out. Uh, you know, Re Wicked Games was really hard to film. It was back, of course, 92 and 3, somewhere in there. But it was a difficult shoot, but I thought it came out really cool for, you know, an analog uh, movie, especially the the snuff cut, which was later, was more in line with what I wanted to kind of do. And that one only had a very limited release here in the United States. It was released in Germany. And then SRS, I think they recently did a Blu-ray that had it on there, finally, as, as an extra. So, it, but it took forever for that to come out. But, uh... Yeah, Wicked Games I can watch. Yeah, Reconcile was just a really fun, smooth shoot from beginning to end. It came out really close to you know the way it was written because it was designed. That's when I was really figuring out even more, and you learn as you go along doing this stuff, of course, you know how to design a movie for what you have access to, your locations, effects, you know. So everything was kind of written into uh, the the script that I planned to do. And it, it just kind of pulled off beautifully because when you looked at it and look at the script, it was almost an exact replica, <laughs> which is really hard to do because, uh, you know, usually you're lucky to get, you know, 30, 40% of what's on the page, you know, on the screen. <laughs> and that goes for big movies too. It's just, it just never, everything changes, you know, the weather changes, the cast brings something different to the part. Uh, so, you know, the entire vision changes, but that one came out really, really, really close Two really good lead actors in the roles, Professor Tread and uh, uh, the other guy, Ron Blair, they really had a good banter, good chemistry. So. Awesome. And uh, I know that you, um, mentioned that you are uh having an entry in the new uh the new height movie to the be the third in the trilogy i was wondering if um anything other than that if there is anything new that you're working on oh uh, i am uh, i'm talking to uh srs uh, cinema about doing a, a movie for them uh this this summer and if uh, if everything goes through if we get the budget and everything that should be out probably early next year if everything goes cool so we're we're working on that and uh, a couple other uh, again we got uh, high fear which uh, we're still working on it's been you know everything got interrupted with the covid for everybody so uh, we we're still working mm -hmm. on that uh, brad sykes has to do the wraparound and uh, a couple other things with the segment i did in there we're still uh, working on it but uh, it's almost finished and it's i think people are gonna really like this one because it's called um it's called When Shadows Come Alive, and it's kind of a kind of a throwback to Hills Have Eyes, Deliverance type of uh, stuff. So I think people are really gonna gonna like it. It's kind of one of those. It starts out as one thing uh, with the old cheating spouses uh, routine, and then it ends up uh, with a lot of different twists, and uh, it ends up in the backwoods with uh, these kind of meth drug dealers that. Uh, don't like people coming onto their territory pretty much. So it, it's kind of a neat little, little, little thing there. So um, I think it's going to be a good one. So that, that should be, if everything goes right, that should be coming out in 2021. Uh, like at least with, if they're doing the film festivals more strong again and, you know, that sort of stuff. And then of course, wild eye entertainment will release it. So that's two things in the works. Awesome. Awesome. 
definitely looking forward to that. And uh, last but not least question that I have for you here is uh, for people who um, are interested in purchasing some of your stuff, uh, where can they find it? Uh, well, if it's, uh, you know, if you're looking for something and you look on like uh, IMDB and, you, and you know, you, of course you can try try Amazon or you can, uh, and if it's something more obscure, uh, SRS Cinema uh, has a store. Or you can just hit me up directly on Facebook, and I can I usually try to help people find you know stuff, especially if it's something really obscure. Sometimes it takes me a little while because I either go through have to go through the vendors or distributors. The vendors have been pretty good though right now. I just found somebody a, a Day of the Reaper original VHS and the original uh, uh, you know the original kind of homegrown, home drawn high school cover, and that took. Took a few weeks because the vendors haven't been nobody's been open, you know, for shows. So everybody has a lot of stuff that they, you know, they're willing to part with. So, so that was pretty cool. So, so yeah, you can hit me up on Facebook or www.timritter.com. Uh, you know, but Facebook, I'm on there, and uh, you know, we can hook you up with uh, whatever your pleasure might be. But a lot of it, you know, is on Amazon. Okay, cool. Awesome. And yeah, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on and answering some questions I had and, and for chatting with me. Cool. No problem. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good one, man. All right. Take care.